Danielle Owen joins us from Harmony Hills to talk about addressing addiction as a family, maintaining personal boundaries and self-care, managing her personal inclination to be a saver, loving from a distance, and the current impacts of fentanyl. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today on the podcast, Danielle Owen is joining us. Um, Danielle is, she is an outreach coordinator at Harmony Hills. She has um, four years of recovery under her belt. She is an advocate for those struggling in addiction and driven to help people and save lives. Danielle, thanks so much for coming, coming on today. Yes, thank you for the invitation. I am extremely excited. Our conversation today is it's a huge topic, um, addiction in general, and I love that we we connected on LinkedIn. And the more people we know, the merrier. The more people we know, we can um, help so many people. I agree. There's so there's so much about addiction that is maybe not unknown, but not known to everybody. Right in the addiction world, we're aware of a lot of things, a lot of concerns that are going on, and and a lot of um, you know, advocacy out there and, and efforts to try and help people and, you know, before it's too late. But in the, in the general population, and I say that really loosely because I don't know of too many people that are not touched, you know, by somebody that struggles with addiction in one form or another, um, but it's less, you know, some of us like to keep the blinders on. Some of us don't really want to know just what's happening out there, but I know you're very tightly connected and so, um, Super excited to hear from you and and learn about your you know your vision and your perspective of the industry. Well, thank you. Yes, unfortunately, there is still a, a stigma out there because many people are uneducated or unwilling to become educated on the topic of addiction. I mean, back in what the 1960s and 70s, it was frowned upon if people got divorced, and nowadays it's an addict, an alcoholic, um, even somebody struggling with mental illness is sometimes looked down upon and it's, it's part of life. Somebody may be addicted to shopping, to, um, to what is that? Klepto, stealing a little lip gloss at every gas station they enter. They're, everybody's addicted to something, whether that's spending an obsessive time with their family, um, 
you're right in saying that it touches each individual in some form or another, um, a member of their church, um, a fellow coworker, your sister's daughter. Um, it, it's just, it, it's unfortunate that the stigma still is alive today. Although I do see it moving in the right direction, more people coming together. And when I say more people coming together, at least here in the Tampa Bay area, uh, outreach coordinators and treatment centers partnering with the police department. And instead of sending somebody to jail, offering treatment instead, which makes such a difference. What we don't need, and I say we because I am a recovered addict, we don't need to be sitting behind bars. We need the therapy. We need the help. We need the proper detox. <laughs> oh, I could not agree more. When you when you talk about you know working with the police departments and giving an alternative to going to jail, <clears throat> it, it takes me back to my days when I was working at a halfway house with women coming out of prison. <clears throat> and I would sit with these women and I would listen to their stories and just be blown away. Um, and, and I'll briefly I'll briefly share one. Um, just because this one always impacts me and I'm only going to share it briefly. And I know everybody's question is, well, what happened after that? But, but there, I don't know. I don't know what happened after that because we don't get to stay in their lives all the time. But this woman, I'm sitting there talking to her and her comment was at the age of nine, I started running away from home because it was safer on the streets than it was in my home. She never, ever told me what went on her home except she told me volumes about what went on in her home for a nine-year-old to feel safer on the streets, right? <clears throat> and so, I mean, just an incredible story and there's more to it, but I'm gonna stop there because I really wanna hear from you. Um, but, but it reminds me of that, right? Is, and my, my whole thought was, why are these women in prison? I get that they're stealing and they're doing all of these behaviors around their addiction, but that is not gonna help them, right? It's just not gonna help them. So I love hearing you say that. No, it's not. And, and with you bringing that story up, the family members tend to get lost in the mix, um, them and considering their feelings behind it. So I make a point of it when I am helping find the, the most appropriate facility for their child or loved one to go to. At the end of the process, connecting back with the family and saying, how are you? What's going on with you? How can I help you? Because there are, um, there's Al-Anon and, and Naranon and church groups that you can connect them to because it just, the day your loved one goes into treatment, it, it doesn't go away. It is, it's a family disease. <laughs> so you need to treat everyone appropriately. Which oh, it's, is so, yeah. and, and that's lost in the mix, unfortunately. Well, it's so difficult to treat the individual. I mean, it's easy once you get them in treatment to go, okay, we're going to hone all of our energies in on you. But so often the families are, you know, like, yeah, just fix this person, fix our loved one, and then everything will be okay. And it's just not the truth. It's, I've never seen that be the truth, right? Is that it's a systemic issue. It involves all of the family members and everybody that's related. It may involve employers. And <clears throat> the more, the, the further you can outreach, the better the success is on the, on the backside. Absolutely, and um, I, I won't take too much time to talk about the facility I work for, although I'm extremely proud, but Harmony Hills, and, and along with many other facilities that I am proud to refer to, 
they have family programs, a weekend family therapy session, intensives with the family, because if you take the, the addict, the alcoholic, the one who's suffering and put them right back in the same environment without addressing some of the family's issues, it, it tends to be a setup for disaster. So we take pride in, in addressing it as a family. Mm, I love that. I think it's, it's, it's vital. It has to be because I think at the core, and we talked about this and we've talked about this in other podcasts, and I'm sure you may agree is that at the core, um, addiction is about attachment. It's about connection. It's about, you know, really having those meaningful relationships with people. And so reaching out and asking for help and connecting is what people need. But the voice in the head says, I have to do this by myself. And and I, I can't ask for help and nobody's safe and, and all of those messages that are there, whether we're aware of them or not. And so, um, so that connection and getting involved, especially as a family member is super vital and important, which I kind of think it's a good lead in because I think your story and, and your path into the recovery world besides your own recovery is also very closely connected to people that you love and care about that we're also suffering with addiction. So maybe let's go back there for a minute and just kind of share your history and how you ended up in recovery. Cause I'll bank money that when you were a little girl, you did not dream about working in the recovery industry. And I, I just always think it's funny and people might go, you keep asking that question, Shelly. And I'm like, yeah, because to me, it just makes me giggle at the, at the path that life ends up, you know, the journey we end up on. Oh, I tell you, it's it's a God thing for me. Um, uh, no, I did not realize as a child growing up that I'd be working in the treatment industry. And even as an adult, four, five years ago, I didn't even know it existed, really. I knew there was treatment centers because I went to rehab as an 18-year-old. But, but um, it's actually kind of a funny story how I um, got into the industry. I was working at a a copy machine and printer company that at the time my sponsor worked at and I was behind in a cubicle behind a desk and that is not my forte I need to be out talking with people that's just who I am and um I said if I'm gonna have to sit here I'm gonna call people that I can relate to so I started targeting treatment centers and I called the regional director of Delphi Behavioral Health her name is Candace and um she was not the the decision maker for office equipment, but we chatted for a little bit, and I held on to her number for a week, and I decided to call her back because I was like, what, what does a regional director of a facility, what do they do? How did she get there? So I left this really like psychotic, weird, <laughs> anxious message of, hi, hi, Candace, this is Danielle from the copy machine company. I'm not trying to sell you machines, but... Um, I want to know how you got to where you are, what you do. So can you please call me back? <laughs> and because the message was just so stupid, it got her attention. And she called me back the next day. I drove down to Fort Lauderdale and she hired me on the spot. So um, my, my first uh, employment in the industry was with Delphi and, um, and along the way with COVID, some things changed and, and I've been at Harmony Hills for the past year now. Um, but I, I just love telling that story. I think it is so funny. And what are the odds, you know? Um, but God led me in that direction um, for a reason. And unfortunately, along the way, even though 
I, I work in the field and I have many connections. It breaks my heart to share that I haven't been able to save everybody that has been close to me. Over the past two years, I, I've lost two best friends and one of them just last week. And um, you know, we, we, we can't save everybody. And at some point for me, I had to learn to love from a distance, which was even harder after attempting so many times because yet I, I yearn to be the saver. That, that's just my personality. But because I'm in recovery myself, I have to protect myself. So, I mean, that, that goes for loved ones too. You know, there has to be a firm a final point where you set firm boundaries and the enabling stops. Um, I, I, I wish I could save everybody and I don't have that power. So I'm curious, um, Danielle, you, 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 um, I know you're really tightly in the community. You're out there talking with people and interacting and uh, making connections with police departments and, you know, other facilities. And I'm sure every organization that you can think of that, that where there's a need so that you can try and connect with these people ahead of time. From your perspective, what's going on out there? Why are we losing so many people? And what are you seeing happening? I have one answer, and that is fentanyl. It is everywhere. Um, it takes one time, one time, and you're done. It is a, the best disguised drug out there. Um, the only way you can detect it is, unfortunately, if you have overdosed, and hopefully you survive through that. Um, but nine times out of ten, the individual doesn't. And what makes me even sick to my stomach is that I hear um, people who are currently in active addiction say, oh, I'm, I'm so sad that so-and-so passed away, but I want what they have because they're, they, they want that good nod and it just disgusts me. And how I, I try to conquer that is sharing these stories of these loved ones dying. They didn't intend to. And um, the task force here is doing as much as they can, which my friend that passed away a year ago, it's incredible what they've done so far here in the state of Florida regarding her death. Um, they have arrested about 60 people uh, in regards of like the whole, the whole ring over on the other side of the state of Florida. And um, uh, to those that may be listening that are drug dealers, you better watch out because people like myself and those in the drug task force we're coming after you. We do not want any more deaths. We just don't. So be ready. <laughs> <laughs> Love that warning. I um okay. So I have a lot of questions around this, and um, so I don't imagine that a drug dealer really wants to kill the person buying drugs from them, right? And right. and I'm, I'm so it makes me a little curious as to where the fentanyl. Why are they using fentanyl? Where is that coming from? And what is their intent? Like, what's happening? Why, you know, do you, you kind of get maybe my question? I have a million of them. Yes, I, I understand. I, uh, a lot of it is being 
from from what I know, brought in from China. There, people are also obtaining it through doctors' offices. They get prescribed fentanyl patches. There, you're able to melt that down. And let's say, for example, you have 20 pills of oxycotton. These individuals are melting these pills down, adding fentanyl to it, and then they get 50 pills, and they make more money because they they have more product now. Fentanyl is cheap. They can make lots of money using it and expanding the, uh, I can't think of the word, um, the amount that they have to sell. But it's killing people. I mean, doesn't that seem like that's a bad business decision to make? Well, the, the decision of them even trying to do it is, is wrong from the get-go. But, you know, money speaks. These it, It's their livelihood. And if they can make three times the amount of money using a drug that causes death, by all means, they're going to. But here's another question. Do they use it themselves? No. <laughs> no, because it's a business. And that that's the other piece, as I always say that, you know, people that are, are a lot of people that are dealing with addiction are some of the highest functioning, most incredible people on the face of the earth. And the fact that, you know, someone or a group of someone's can be so industrious as to figure out a way to make more money and be more effective in their business of selling drugs, um, safe or not, they have a lot of skills, right? There's a lot of skills that should they choose to direct those in more ethical and healthy ways that they are super successful people in life once they get past the addiction piece. So it just kind of mind, it's mind blowing to think of these incredible people that are out there, you know, not intentionally, but harming other people just due to addiction and the nature of addiction, right? Yes, there, and if you search for it, there have been, I've read at least 10 news articles from New York where they get to the source and they have been charged with murder. That's pretty serious. I mean, that's really serious. It's not like you're just going to get a drug charge. It's, it's murder. Mm-hmm. It, it sure is. So, you know, and the, and the middleman, the middlemen in between there, maybe, uh, I, I, I'm just thinking, uh, off the top of my head, maybe uh, involuntary manslaughter, or they actually get the drug charge because nine times out of 10, they don't actually know what they're selling. They're just running it for the big guy. Mm. I can tell that this is really near and dear to you. And, you know, you've lost people and it doesn't take long to lose people that are really close to you to due to overdose and, and needless overdose, you know, not even intended overdose to where you really want to make a difference. Talk about some of the things that you're doing in the industry and in your community that's that's maybe scratching the surface. Oh gosh, um, I try to do so much. I, I don't even know how to gather one thought regarding that. Um, um, a few, myself and a few other outreach coordinators here, we have um, formed a, a partnership and we're still in the developing phases of, of what we're really trying to do out there. But along with that partnership, we have engaged with many nonprofits. And one way that we are trying to scratch the surface is many individuals 
are, are living on the street. They may be dependent on Medicaid, Medicare, or are completely indigent. And one way that we're able to touch those individuals is by holding treatment centers accountable that are for profit to provide scholarships each month, to provide beds to these individuals because they matter just as much as somebody that has a stellar insurance policy um, and uh, doesn't have financial resources. Um, I've also taken the time to educate case managers, social workers that work within hospitals who are so overwhelmed and, and not to talk down or badly about them, but because of being so overwhelmed, especially over the past 18 months with COVID, it's like they've got to discharge people left and right, even without a discharge plan. And the importance of that is, calm, let me do the back end work for you. I, I, let me do this. This person matters. Not that they don't feel that same way, but their job is, is, is the, a sense of urgency. And when talking to people, and families and police and nonprofits and sober living homes, if we don't have a sense of urgency in this field, then we have nothing. At me being in recovery myself, one minute I was willing to go to treatment and five minutes later, I'll stop answering my phone. You have to act now, you have to know the people to reach out to that moment. There, there's no dilly-dallying here. Um, so I mean, I. I I don't know if I quite answered that question. <laughs> I kind of off a little tangent, but um, sharing the message of there is hope with church members, talking to pastors, um, talking to my neighbors, um, who I, the more people that I share I'm in recovery with, I think the more people will trust and reach out to me because I can relate and, um, in regards of the, the fentanyl and the task force and trying to control the distribution of the drugs on the street, that's something that's really out of my hands. But if I can be there to help in any way, which is connect somebody to the help they may not want, but they need, that's the part or the role that I can play. So I don't give up. Unfortunately, the people that I have been close with and not close with that have passed away, it just gives me the fire lit under my butt grows and grows and grows. I talk about recovery every day. I live it. I breathe it. I, I just, I, I, I don't want to hear of another death, which is inevitable. So I'm doing my best to decrease that. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I am curious about, you know, you talk about the hospitals and and having such a, you know, the social workers are really overburdened, and I agree. They, you know, and, and I think a lot of hospital workers, I mean, they're, they're, they're our first responders, and and the trauma that they're experiencing is real. And so there's no criticism, because I get what's happening there, and we're all doing the best that we can. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm curious if you know the, there may be, there's statistics, I know, but how many times does someone who, dies of an overdose, how many times do they have a touch point at a hospital or somewhere with someone else that gets dropped or, you know, that doesn't get followed up on that could have saved their lives? And I don't know if we know that, but, but I know there's research out there that suggests that, that these people have been in touch points, that somebody's connected with them that could have made a difference. And granted, it's like you said, five minutes 
after you made the call to get help, you went, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not giving up my, you know, my life-saving drugs to, you know, that, that help me manage. I'm not going to give that up. And so, so there's, I mean, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth maybe, but I'm, I'm talking about the issue that's there and, and, and what you're trying to do is make a difference by going to those touch points and really helping people understand. And if they can't do it, let you, let you take over or someone else who's in a position that they can. I, I don't know the statistics behind that, but I can, I imagine the number's pretty high. I, I do remember hearing this statistic that in order for an individual to obtain long-term sobriety, the statistic is, is that they relapse 17 times, which in my case is not true, but um, by the grace of God, it's not. Um, that's the only real statistic that I know, but... One example of a high number is individuals are utilizing ERs as as a hotel, as a spot to go and get some comfort withdrawal drugs until their phone rings with with the guy that says, "Oh, I just came across some money." All right, then they rip they rip the the cords out of their arm and they're on their way. So the ERs and the hospitals are being utilized not in the appropriate way, which leads to the overwhelmness um, of, of the healthcare workers. Um, but I mean, it, if you see somebody on the side of the road, which, which I did about nine months ago, um, I drove, it was in a Walmart parking lot on the side of a building, um, and a guy on a bike kind of waved me down as I was driving by. I didn't know the person slumped over on the wall. And I pulled over and the guy on the bike said, call 911. And I did. And um, I went over and, and he wasn't breathing. He was turning purple. And as I was checking, um, I had 911 on the phone and they were telling me to do certain things to check this and that. And within the next 60 to 90 seconds, the, the gentleman slumped over, started to breathe, and he heard me on the phone that I was on with the with 911, and the guy on the bike said, man, she's, she's on the phone, you gotta get going, you gotta go, and this guy stood up, and I said, sit, stay down, like, I, I don't know what's wrong with you, are you, like, what's happening, and by the time the fire department got here, he was up walking down the sidewalk, and unfortunately, the firefighters that showed up rolled their eyes at me and said, Why'd you call? That guy didn't want help. Well, are you kidding me? So, I, I, like, it's a never-ending education um, that we need to do. Uh, it just, I didn't believe it. Well, and it's frustrating, too, because here's a guy on a bike flagging you down. He knows this guy needs help. He might die. But he must also know that it's that the moments in between life and death are very brief. And as soon as that guy comes to, they've already done this before. It's like you said, they're out of there. I, that's just a curious piece. And I don't know that I've ever heard anyone talk about the fact of the way that, that the emergency rooms are being used, you know, help me get through this detox. Cause I'm out of money. I can't get yeah. any more product. Um, but as soon as I get, you know, get in contact with somebody who does, I'm out of there. I mean, that's the nature of the addiction, but I don't think most of us really understand just just how far someone goes and what they'll do in order to survive 
in in their addiction it's it's incredible i did some crazy things myself but um i it was a, it was a gradual downhill spiral for me i i still i had an apartment i was paying rent then i lost my job still hung on to my apartment for a couple months couldn't afford it moved in with a family member started stealing from them and pawning items then got kicked out started living in my car and I still didn't think it was that bad because it was a gradual decline but when somebody goes from 80 to 0 100 to 0 it's a shock and that's the moment where somebody actually wants the help um because it's so unknown so so dramatic so drastic um so when it, this gradual decline happens, individuals just don't think it's that bad yet. It's interesting, and and well, and the 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 drug you know takes over, right? It really rewires the brain, and it says I'm the most important thing, and as long as you take care of me, everything else is fine, right? So which means <clears throat> my shelter doesn't really matter as much as the drug. The food doesn't really matter as much as the drug relationships don't matter as much as the drug and it's it's part of the illness of addiction and so we might look at it and go this just doesn't make any sense why are you doing these things and we want to shut them out of our lives which is healthy boundaries sometimes but they are really really sick and we certainly wouldn't i don't know this gets used a lot but we certainly wouldn't tell somebody in you know with diabetes who's in insulin shock sorry you did this to yourself you know you're not going to get any help um, but we do things, people do things that are under the influence that are hurtful and that, you know, that people don't want to keep being hurt over and over again. <clears throat> and so it's not, it's understandable why these things happen. It's, it's just this really conflictual question that's always in the back of our mind is, can I help? And if I can't help, you know, what do we do? Because this person's going to, we might lose them. I think... Um... Uh, beautifully said, uh, for those, um, for the family members, the friends, when they do have a loved one in active addiction, to realize if, if the individual suffering uses, uses words and, and upsets them, it's, it's not about them, and it's not the actual person. It is the addiction. It is the devil talking Although, yes, um, you know, that's where the amends comes in down the road. But it wasn't me when I was yelling and screaming at my mom. It was the drug. It was the fiend. It was, it it was almost like I I was possessed when I was in active addiction. Um, I, from the moment my eyes opened to the moment my eyes closed, that's all I thought about. And the best thing, the most priceless or most, valuable gift that I ever gave my family and friends was peace of mind. And they will, they will tell that and repeat that to you until they're blue in the face. No, no necklace for Christmas, no uh, beautiful flower arrangement could ever trump just the peace of mind and them getting a beautiful night's rest of sleep. Well, I love that too, because our, you know, we, we do, we worry about our loved ones and, and just like that guy on the street, you know, if he doesn't want help, there isn't anything that anybody can do for him if he doesn't want help and is refusing help. 
And so that's where boundaries come in. And that might be a good conversation, a good lead in to talk about, you know, we've got, we've had COVID where, you know, lots of us are overwhelmed. There's, there's, you know, addiction is not getting smaller. It seems to be growing in proportion and, and the work to be done is great. How do you set boundaries when you're working with someone in addiction and how do you do self-care? Ah, that's a work in progress, learning to master that. <laughs> right. Uh, I, me personally, I am, my friends and family know that I have an open door policy. But if someone near and dear to me is in active addiction, they know they are not welcome. Um it is through telling them multiple times if needed. Um, I have called the police before, and that's to protect my safe space, to protect myself. Has it, At the end of the day, it really has nothing to do with them. It's about me at that point. And um, setting boundaries has always been very, very tough for me because I am a people pleaser, but I am learning um, through practice and implementing them and, and standing firm. But I think as a society as whole, it's hard to hold boundaries when you see somebody and they're suffering and they don't want it. It's human nature to, to want to help, but to what it, to, to what detriment to yourself. And, um, when, when both my friends passed away, I, I took it personal at first, even it had nothing to do with me. It's not about me. And I, and I, I made it that because I, I allowed my first friend to stay with me and I knew she was withdrawing and, and I said, I'm sorry, I, I can't let you stay here anymore. And two weeks later she was dead. And so it's like, what, what if I let her, what if I locked her in my bedroom? And I, I, I don't have that power. If she wanted to use, she was going to use no matter what. Um, but I will say this, that if somebody is unwilling it, in the state of Florida, there is such thing. It's called a Marchman Act. And that is when you can get an attorney and the courts involved and court order somebody to attend treatment. If they leave, if they um, AMA against medical or uh, against clinical advice, then a warrant is um, created and they are picked up until they until they complete three to six months of treatment. So there is another option, but it's not a locked facility. And I know many families that have exhausted that option and um, it's worked, I'd say seven out of the 10 times I could, I could say um, confidently. So there's, there's one last ditch effort, but you have to be, be ready. The courts, the law will be involved at that point. Which, which isn't, you know, some, I, I've worked with families who it's like, well, we don't want the police. We don't want the police here because then they'll have a record and then it'll be this, and then it'll be that. It's like, we have to let that go. And we have to remember that we're trying to create and get someone in a safer place and the record and the consequences of our of our behaviors those can be dealt with later but death is something that we can't recover from and so we have to think about it kind of like that because it's difficult it's very difficult those decisions are difficult just like you talked about i'm sure that you've had to really work through the fact that you asked your friend to leave because she was active in her addiction and then she passed away that that does not leave us without some 
imprints and some feelings and strong emotions, right? And some work for ourselves to do because what we do is it has its own trauma, even if it's secondhand. Yes, it does. And I even, it's almost as if because I've seen so many pass away, both close and not uh, a, a close connection with just in general, that I've become numb to it. I, it's like the emotion, it's, it's addiction is black and fricking white. You use, you can die. You continue to use, you will die. It, it is that simple for me. Um, just like, um, oh, I, I don't know of another example I was going to give, but um, it, it's, it's just, it breaks down to be that exact, uh, the simplicity of it. Well, that helps uh, you make very clear decisions, though, you know, and know what it is that you need to do for someone, or if you can do something for someone, here's the length that you can go to do it. And it really doesn't matter if they hate you. It really doesn't matter what they're saying to you because you are very clear. You can die and I'm going to do everything I can. And I, if you live, I'm happy if you hate me the rest of your life. I just need you to live, right? Isn't that the message you're sending? Absolutely. Yes. And um, that has happened to me. <laughs> and that's okay. I, I have... I have called family members. I have, I have, I have not called employers, but I got very close to one time. I have called the cops. I have done that, and I, I am not friends with a couple people because of that. And I'm okay with it. They're still breathing. I can accept that. What I couldn't accept is, is if I didn't exhaust every single avenue before they they passed or something worse happened. It's go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just, I was just thinking this is probably a bad, a bad comment, you know, not a, not a healthy comment to make what I'm thinking, but, but it's, this is reality. So we'll talk about it, right? Cause life is difficult, but families, sometimes they've given so much, they've given all of their savings. They've, you know, they have given and given and given, and they've been hurt and hurt and hurt, and they're just done. And sometimes they're, wishes and their prayers and their desires change from, you know, just keep them safe to, you know, just end this, just end this. Right. And, and I, I get how that shifts and how that changes. How do you keep from going there? So that, um, I'm not quite sure what to say. Uh, I, when somebody does, there's, here, let me start with this. There is a beautiful Chinese proverb that I'm going to butcher because I don't have it memorized, but there is a, an old Chinese farmer that, um, had wild horses and a few of his own. One day, two horses ran off. And all the town people came running. Oh, I'm so sorry that your horses, they ran off. What can we do to help? And the farmer replied with, good or bad, who's to say? The following day, his son fell off a horse and broke his leg. And the town people came and said, oh, can we cook meals? What can we do? Are you okay? And the father replied, good or bad, who's to say? 
Then the army came knocking the following day, trying to get all able-bodied men to take to war. And the people came running down the hill, the village people rejoicing, saying, we're so happy your son wasn't enlisted because of his broken leg. And the father yet again said, good or bad, who's to say? So with death, who's to say it's good or bad? If someone dies, maybe that is a relief for a lifetime of hurt, of pain for the family and for the individual. My the first close friend that passed away of mine a year ago, she passed on May 5th, 2020, and 21 days later, her husband passed, leaving behind a nine-year-old daughter. And how horrible, how tragic, but who's to say? Could that, did that, by both addicts of her parents passing, did that relieve this beautiful young daughter of, of a lifetime of parents in and out of her life? of pain, of, of worry, Where, where's mom tonight, of, of more conversations through a jail phone call. Um, who's to really say? But, um, I mean, I, I shouldn't talk too much about religion on here, but I, my God has all the answers, and um, his path is the path uh, for everyone. And if it's unfortunate, again, who's to say, good or bad? Mm, I love that proverb and, and the message of, yeah, good or bad. And I also hear you making peace, right? You talked about that peace of mind that family members get when someone chooses to get into sobriety. <clears throat> what you're talking about also allows us to celebrate the good of people and the good hearts and the good lives that people led when we lose them to addiction. Um, it's, it's very complex, right? It's, it's messy and it's difficult, but sometimes we're forced to have to do both of those. You know, the peace of mind of them getting recovery and the peace of mind of they were a great person and now they're gone and we've got to figure out how to move on in the best way that we can because you can't change it at that point. So I, I love the message though and I'm going to have to write that proverb down because that's a good one. Who's to say, good or bad? That's right. And doesn't it also leave it up to us that part of it is that we get to choose, right? Our choices get to, to dictate what, whether it's good or bad. Because in any one moment, isn't there both good and bad in any instant, in any moment? And that we get to choose what we focus on and choose um, what we're going to do with that experience and that event. And I think that's part of the power of, of recovery is that it teaches us that we do have choices. Absolutely, and gratitude is key for me in my daily life. Um, there, there can't be good if there is not bad. How, how else would you measure it? Um, one of my sponsors shared with me, and I will never forget this, and I will share it as often as I can. She said, you either learn the lesson or you become the lesson. And today I have learned the lesson and I anticipate and intend on tomorrow. I have learned the lesson in the following day, um, but I can't, uh, I don't know what the future holds, but um, I intend on remaining grateful, humble, and working as hard as I can. I, I, I'm single with no children, so my life is work. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I do as much as I can to help others. And I, I don't know if I, I actually answered the self-care, but um, I love doing yard work. That brings me peace and the alone time and the solitude of it, not isolation, but solitude. Um, I love to being outside, um, uh, listening to really good music is another part, but turning the phone off, which I do it with my hands shaking because I don't feel like I can, but I do because it's important to, um, to breathe sometimes, um, and to focus on yourself. It is okay to focus on yourself. It's okay to not answer every call. It's okay. Um, because you're just as important as the one suffering. Um, but self-care throughout recovery is, is of the utmost importance. It really is finding what you love and you enjoy or else why, why stay sober? Mm. Words for words of wisdom, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm reading, <clears throat> rereading, um, the book essentialism and, uh, and it really talks about some of those self-care pieces of getting enough sleep and you know, eating right and exercising and having that quiet time. So I'm trying to remind myself again that I need to take more downtime, right? And not work all the time. So I love that, that reminder and, and talking about self-care and, and why it's important to focus on ourselves. Cause if we don't have anything left in the tank, we, it's really tough to help somebody else and pull them out of, you know, a crisis. Absolutely. <clears throat> and that's, and that's the danger zone. For those in recovery, when your tank gets low, um, there's a reason in your car. It's in red or in blue. It, it's it's be careful. Hello. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the truth? Yes. Um, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me of um, <clears throat> there's a a Christian video that was created by a Christian group, um, and that it, it it's called the Butterfly Circus. I don't know if you ever seen the Butterfly Circus. It's on YouTube and it's um, Nick Voldacek. I may not have said his name right, but he was born with no arms or no legs. And he's, he's quite an interesting character, but he's in the movie or in the show. It's a, just a little a flick. Um, but, but it's about, you know, old station in, you know, kind of the 19, I don't know, 20s, 30s, somewhere in there. And, and they're part of a circus and people come and laugh at their defects and you know the lady with beard and things like that <clears throat> and there's this um circus owner um who comes and gathers all of these people that are different and you know that people are laughing at and he brings them into his circus and he gives them dignity and he gives them you know a place of belonging and a family and and he's talking to this man with no arms and no legs and he's bitter and he's angry because of his experiences and and the circus master says look the deeper the pain the greater the joy oh yes and that we have to you know and it's true is that you know we sometimes want to avoid the challenges and avoid uh, the difficult things that come our way, but those are the very things that help us to grow and to, you know, become stronger and to learn to reach out and, and, you know, join with other people to have that strength as well. Absolutely. I, I am, um, not embarrassed to say, I, I think everybody should have a therapist and be in, in therapy. Um, and my therapist asked me, 
two weeks ago, she said, Danielle, do you want to live in relief or do you want to live in wholeness? And uh, I, I didn't know how to answer that. I, I really wanted to look up the definitions of both and what it actually meant because relief sounds good, but <laughs> wholeness sounds better. So I did a little research and my answer is wholeness. I, I need to feel the pain, appreciate the pain and move through it. Um, but it, it's a choice. Um, and to circle, to circle back really quick, um, any individuals like yourself, Shelly, and I who work in the field, I think it is so important that we look at every category and have people that we can reach out to. And when I say category, I mean um, a quality detox center, a quality interventionist, a quality sober living, quality um, uh, addiction therapists, quality employment opportunities and know everything. I, it, it takes time and, and commitment to really vet these um, different categories, you could say, but from start to finish, the more productive I can be and the more people I can help or reach if I have a full gamut of, of everything out there. Um, I have a police officer in my back pocket if I need him. I have a therapist that I can call any time of the night. Um, sober living, same thing. A 24-hour detox because there are those times where I get calls from a sober living and say somebody came home drunk or high. Okay, great. Um, I got the place. Here you go. Um, it, it not only makes me feel better as an individual, but professionally, um, I, by looking for these connections, um, people reach out to me more and, um, and in turn together, we can just help more people. I think that is very important for us that work in the industry that we have every avenue covered, not only for the person suffering, but for the family member. Mm, I love what you just said, because really what you're saying is that you have a responsibility to find answers to the questions that, that you may or may not know are coming. And you've spent years developing these relationships because you're so committed to helping people live and saving their lives when you have a chance to touch their lives. So, and so of course people are going to come to you because you've done your work and you have the answers and, and you're a valuable resource. I love that. Well, thank you. You know, I've, I, I've had to weed out some, uh, uh, and it's been an uphill battle living in the state of Florida because of, um, I don't know if you've watched the documentary or the movie called Body Brokering. It still exists, and it absolutely disgusts me, and um, I refuse to um, work with any individual that has uh, any tie or verbiage I can pick up on pretty quickly if that's um, who they are and their intent. Um, I, I, I am not that one, and I hope anybody who works in the field and is in recovery themselves, um, they're doing the right thing. And unfortunately, I, I hear from time to time um, the, the humanizing, or I guess maybe that's not a real word, I don't know, but the, the human part of it gets pushed to the side and it becomes an insurance policy. It becomes financial, which yes, on the business aspect, for-profit 
facilities, we need to keep the lights on if we're not getting state funding. Yes, I understand it, but when you start referring to an individual, not by their name, but by their insurance policy, um, uh, see you later, <laughs> you know. Um, when in dire need, um, something just like the sense of urgency I spoke about earlier, yes, I, I, I will say, I'll call my friend who works at this facility and make sure, hey, you're still in network with Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? So then boom, you know, so there's a part of the verbiage that is always going to be there, but um, the intent behind it should be um, um, love and actual compassion. So you bring up a, a really good point, and, and I think that we're moving in a direction that is much healthier, right? We've had regulations put in place, laws put in place to try and minimize some of that, you know, human brokering and, and body brokering. <clears throat> um, and it's a tough piece in, in the industry we're in where we're working and advocating for clients, um, you know, with the insurance companies, right? We're trying to get their authorizations. We're trying to get their claims paid. It might be an appeal of, you know, the insurance saying, we're not going to pay for this and us saying, no, you said you would pay for this and here's the reasons why, right? Um, and so it often there becomes this question about insurance. What's their insurance? Do they have resources of any kind is probably a better question. What, what keys you off, um, and you may not be able to answer this, but what is the trigger piece that makes you feel like they're brokering people as opposed to helping people? Um, oh, I will happily answer this. <laughs> um, it is the, um, you send me one, I'll send you one. I, uh, I sent you three referrals last month and I still have yet to get one from you. So I'm not going to send you any more until that happens. Um, I, I refer to places that are meet the needs and requirements including financials for the individual and the people that are within my close circle um, of resources, they operate in the same way. I will um, fight tooth and nail to fight for a scholarship before referring to any place that um, I've ever picked up on the verbiage um, along those lines with. Um, it, it, it could have happened to me and thank God it didn't, but um, it, they're just, it's not a piece of paper. It's it, same thing as if somebody is, has cancer, has diabetes, you know, um, uh, a mother was at a, uh, a nonprofit called Epicenter for Recovery, excuse me, Recovery Epicenter. And she said, we need to start holding these insurance companies accountable. All, all facilities, all treatment centers need to accept these, this insurance. Well, my, my response to that is that's a much bigger game, um, but what can we do now? So within your community, partner with, with insurance agents. Let's get somebody set up on it um, if it's Medicaid, Medicare. Um, let's make sure that the state funded, they're, they're getting funding, and if so, that they hold their word by you're getting funded for 90 days for an individual, make sure that that person stays there for 90 days. They don't discharge them after 60 and keep 30 days of money. Um, that's something that you can do locally, but, um, within the Tampa community, I can confidently say that the outreach coordinators here, we are a family and, um, have weeded out some of those 
that um, no longer work in the industry or at least got fired from the company that they represented because we, we won't work with them. Mm, I love that you're, you're advocating in those arenas um, because that's, that is kind of where it starts, right? Is, is, uh, is feeling like, you know, you've got this job and you get paid for filling beds and you miss the piece where there's a person behind every one of these situations. It's a real person. There's family members, there's people who love them. And, and you have to remember that you have to remember to do the right for the person before worrying about the rest of it. So, I mean, yes, we have to make money. We all have to make money. Community centers have to make money in one way or another, right? Whether they're state funded or not. Um, but, but we don't have to treat people like dollars. Right. And if, if anybody is out there looking for a job in, and is interested in working in the field, I would challenge them to ask those tough questions when they're in the interview process. Um, do you offer scholarships? Um, when you have beds available, um, do you, is there a bonus because there really should not be, um, you know, challenge it, ask, because I work for an incredible company. Harmony Hills is, is ethical and, and I wouldn't continue, um, working for them if I, if I thought there was something wrong, but our owners have given back by providing, beds to those. Um, I mean, we specialize in mental illness. So our census is, is typically, um, with, with schizophrenia individuals on um, borderline personality on down to anxiety, but we still offer detox and residential. And, um, there are not that many options in central Florida at, regarding mental illness and, um, they give back They're in recovery themselves. And, I tell you what, Shelly, this business, you, you can make a lot of money, and some people have, and along the way, their morals and ethics and beliefs have shifted, and that is unfortunate. Um, and those, the, a lot of those people are in prison today. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's true. We've worked with a couple, and it was a little scary going through that process, but, but they're, not, they're not pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. It's just a matter of time. Yes, um, yes. Oh, I love your passion. I love, I love our conversation and the work that you're doing. Um, it's so valuable and so important. And, y- you know, we can get caught up in the weeds, but I love that you keep your focus directed on the individual. What do we do to help the individual? And there's so many areas that you're working and that you've brought up, um, areas where we can work in the community and help other people. So super valuable to have you on today. And share your story, share your experience, share your, share your knowledge, um, and try and save lives. Thank you. I, thank you. Well, I, I am a bit of a talker, so I'm sorry if I just took over. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. 